Let's jump in. Matthew 3, 1 through 3. This is the introduction. We covered this last week, right? In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. Okay, so you got this, right? Isaiah is saying, there's a man who's coming, and when he arrives, you better part the road, you better get out of the streets, you better open your ears. He has a message for you. Here was his message, Matthew 3, 11 through 12. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. This is going to become really interesting for you in a moment. Listen to him describe Jesus. He's greater than I am. He's more powerful than I am. So much greater that I'm not worthy even to be his slave and to carry his sandals. I will baptize, he will baptize you. With the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gather the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never ending fire. John comes out of the gate. They say, listen, clear the way for him. Get out of the streets. Listen up. And there is this bold man. He's wearing fur coats and he's eating locusts and he's out in the wilderness and he is declaring Jesus is Lord. He's declaring his greatness. He's declaring his power. He's declaring his might. And then something happens along the way from being the introducer of Jesus to sitting in a prison cell by himself. His expectations aren't met, and he begins to doubt. His expectations in the season that he is in don't match up with what he thought he was announcing, and he moves into a season of doubt. Am I the only one? Am I the only one who's walked through a season where you start something and you envision one thing and then all of a sudden it's completely different, it's not what you expected and then you're in this tension of battling between I believe God called me to do this but when God called me to do this my expectation of it was not near what I'm experiencing now. What do I do about this? How do I make sense of this? Listen, that's John, Matthew 11, 1 through 6. We just read the first part, right? Here he comes, repent, he's greater than I am, he's baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. Get yourselves ready for this man. Matthew 11, 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in the towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, remember him? The front runner. Who was in prison, he's in prison right now heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, verse 3, this is amazing, are you the coming Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Are you, are you him? Are you really the guy? Or should we just move on? Should we just quit? Should we just stop? Verse 4, Jesus told them, Go back to tell John what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Verse 6, and he added, this is an amazing sentence, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. 
How do you go from? How do you go from being the front runner, being the introducer, being the champion of Jesus, to then asking the question, is this, is this the guy? Is this him, or should we just look for somebody else? Should we put our hope in somebody else? I mean, what, what, is, what is the point in this moment that I'm in right now? You know, I, I read a story last week about Bruce and Michael Buffer. Do we have the picture of the Buffer brothers? Let me see him. Yes, Bruce and Michael Buffer. Um, Bruce Buffer was 29 years old. He's the brother on this side. He was 29 years old when he heard Michael Buffer announce Mike Tyson for his first heavyweight fight in 1984. He was watching on TV. He saw this, and as Michael Buffer got up and he began to introduce Mike Tyson, he noticed that they shared the same last name, Buffer. So Bruce Buffer started kind of wondering, you know, what's going on? This doesn't make a lot. Man, this, this is weird. He worked in a telecommunications industry. He had access to all kinds of phone numbers. So he found Don King and Bob Arum's office's phone numbers. And Bruce Buffer began calling the, the offices of these guys. And he was asking questions about Michael Buffer. Who is this Michael Buffer? How did you find him? Where is he from? And after his investigating, he found out that Michael Buffer was raised born and raised 20 miles outside of where he grew up in Pennsylvania. So he's watching now as, as Michael Buffer begins to, to explode on the scene. He became just as popular as the boxers that he was announcing. And everyone began asking Bruce Buffer. They began saying, hey, you know this Michael Buffer? Is this guy your brother? Is this guy your brother? He shares the same name. You guys kind of look similar. You got great voices. Is, is this your brother? And so he goes to his dad one day, Bruce Buffer does, and he's sitting down, he's talking to his dad, and he says to his dad, um, hey, have you heard about this Michael Buffer, this guy who is the announcer for all of the huge world championship boxing events? Like, do you know who I'm talking about? And his dad said, son, I need to tell you a story. <laughs> Surprise. His dad said, before I went off to World War II, I got married, and the woman that I married got pregnant, and she gave birth to a baby boy. He said, I left for nine months, came back, and we divorced under unfortunate circumstances, and the child was given into foster care and was raised in foster care, and we named the boy Michael. So Bruce Buffer, as a grown adult, starts reaching out to Michael Buffer. He finally gets into contact with Michael Buffer. And when he makes contact, the two meet up and they confirm without any doubt that they are actually brothers. A wild story. The two have come together to become the most iconic sports announcers of all time. From their trademarks, it's time to let's get ready to rumble. They've made over a hundred million dollars together. Now listen, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be cool for us to talk about them without hearing the great voice of the announcers. So guys, I know you have one. Put us in a Mike Tyson heavyweight fight right now. Crank the volume up. Let's hear the introduction. Ready? Go. Give us one. Who is it? Ladies and gentlemen, from Mandalay Bay, Las Vegas, uh, let's get ready to rumble! Where you at? Golly, missed your opportunity! One of the most iconic announcers!
pastors of all time is screaming, let's get ready to rumble. And you say, yeah, church is fun. <laughs> Praise God. All right, give us, give us Bruce Buffer. Give us Bruce. And now, for those in attendance and UFC fans watching around the world, this is the moment you've truly all been waiting for. Live from the sold-out T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, it's time! Yes, we're there! I felt cage side on that one. Thank you, right? So they, they share this whole story. Isn't this crazy that as grown men, they find out that they're brothers, they form this company together, they become these voice of announcers of all time, and they're doing this interview talking about what it means to have their lives come together in this fashion. And both of them said, uh, there, there's nothing we can describe it other than announcing has changed our lives in more ways than one. Announcing has totally, he said, if my brother wasn't an announcer and I wasn't an announcer, we would have never united. We would have never made our copyrights and trademarks. We would have never built our business. He said, announcing has changed our lives in more ways than one. Man, don't you think John the Baptist is saying the same thing? Announcing has totally changed my life. Because I started out as the voice piece for Jesus. I was out in front of everybody. I was announcing, it's time to get baptized, right? Like, here he is, and he's ready. He was the guy. He was the, the most iconic announcer of all time for Jesus. And now he finds himself literally sitting in a prison cell alone, asking himself, is this even real? Somewhere along the way, John's expectations didn't meet his experience. Somewhere along the way, John had these expectations of Jesus. They didn't meet his experience, and now he's sitting in a prison cell trying to justify it all. How about for you? Can you relate to John? Again, am I the only one? Are the only one that had these expectations of doing something and then a flood or a pandemic or something has just totally changed what that looks like. And I find myself saying to myself now, wow, when I first got into this, I wasn't expecting this. This is completely different than what I expected. How do you walk through that? How do you walk through that? How do you walk through having these expectations of faith, these expectations of what it's going to be like, these expectations of Jesus, these expectations for your family, these expectations for your children, these expectations for your career, and then all of a sudden you look 20 years from now and you're like, wow, not what I was expecting. How do you walk through that? John gives us the blueprint, and I want to give you three expectations that change for John. We'll start with the first one. It's his expectation of Jesus. John had a specific expectation of Jesus, that when he encountered Jesus, what Jesus would do, what he would be like, who he was, John had this expectation, and the expectation doesn't come out. Look, in Matthew eleven two 2-3, it says, John the Baptist, who is in prison, 
heard about all the things the Messiah was doing, so he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Are you the real Jesus? Are you the Jesus that I thought I was announcing? <laughs> Are you the Jesus that I baptized? Are you the Jesus that I baptized in the Jordan River? Are you the one that they talk about in Luke 4, 18? Are you, are you that guy, or should we find somebody else? Ever been confused for somebody else? I guess I'm the only one, again, confused. The most awkward one that I've ever had, I was in Los Angeles. This was uh, 18 years ago. Um, I was serving in a missions trip at the Dream Center in L.A., and as I was walking, this guy out of nowhere um, says to me, Hey! Johnny Knoxville. Just what? Johnny. And I had Anna. Anna's done this. You guys got those comparisons. Listen, like I said, this was 18 years ago. Don't hold me to this now. Um, you got him. Throw him up there. There's, there's the moron himself. <laughs> Fitting. Next one. What do we got? Another one. Yep, there's Johnny Knoxville and I. I used to even wear the aviators. What do we got? Do we have more of them? Um, can you see it? Kind of. Yes. No. Maybe. What else do we have? Uh, okay, see, I was 18 once, 19 once. Um, yeah, there is uh, me and Johnny Knoxville. You know, you get a celebrity lookalike. Couldn't it have been like Brad Pitt, the most gorgeous man alive? No, I get the biggest goofball alive, right? I get the biggest goofball alive. That's, that's my celebrity lookalike, right? Uh, that's what I get to, to claim. So I'm there. I'm in L.A., and this guy says, Johnny Knoxville. So, no, no. And he said, dude, he said, dude, 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 it's okay. You don't have to be shy. I was like, no, you don't understand. I'm not Johnny Knoxville. He said, no. <laughs> okay, man, okay. I got it, I got it. You, you're, no, 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 you're not. And he goes over to his buddies. He's like, guys, look. Knoxville's over there. He's trying to take pictures. I'm like, listen, I'm not Johnny Knoxville, but I'm about to go Knoxville and kick you in the groin and hit you over the head with a chair or something. Like, what, what, why won't you? But it was, no matter how hard I tried, this guy was convinced. He was dead convinced I was somebody else. You know, John and many other people in Scripture come up with this time where they're, they're convinced that Jesus was somebody else. In fact, I'll show you a couple of them. Uh, one of them is Jesus' neighbors. They refused to acknowledge his deity, Matthew 13, 54 through 57. It says, he returned to Nazareth, his hometown. When he taught there in the synagogue, everyone was amazed and said, where does his wisdom and power to do miracles? Verse 55, then they scoffed, he's just the carpenter's son, and we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All his sisters live right here among us. Where did he learn all these things? Verse 57, and they were deeply offended and refused to believe him. Like, no, no, this isn't the Messiah. He's not the guy. Look at Herod, uh, said he was John the Baptist resurrected, ironically enough. Matthew 4, uh, 14, 1 through 2, it says, when Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, heard about Jesus, he said to his advisors, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's why he can do such miracles. Others assumed that he was just an Old Testament prophet. Matthew 16, 14, it says, Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other 
prophets. Peter had the right titles and the wrong theology. Listen to Peter, Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He got the title right, but Matthew 16, 22 through 23. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. Jesus was telling them about his crucifixion, and Peter's saying, nope, not happening. Verse 23, Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. In other words, you got the wrong Jesus. You're not seeing who I actually am. Happened many more times. Mary Magdalene mistaked Jesus uh, as after post-resurrection as a carpenter in the garden. Cleopas reduced him to a visitor from Jerusalem. But not only that, not only did people just, just totally mess up who Jesus was, I have a professor that teaches a whole class on this. There is not one time in the Gospels where Jesus communicates to his disciples and they fully understand what he's saying. There is not one time where Jesus talks to his followers and they fully get it. Let's just run through John chapter 2. I'll give you three of them right here. John 2, 3, and 4. John chapter 2, Jesus says to his disciples, uh, we will wreck this temple in three days. We will build it again. And they say to him, Lord, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. But he was talking about the temple of his body, Right? John chapter 3, he goes to Nicodemus, and he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, how can an old man be born again? Totally misses it. John chapter 4, woman at the well. Jesus says to her, woman, if you understood who you were talking to, you would ask me for living water, I would give it to you, and you would never thirst again. And what does she say to Jesus? But the well's too deep, and you've got nothing to draw with. I don't get it. They don't get it. Listen, if it's possible for these people in the lifespan of Jesus to completely miss who he is and what he says, is it possible for us to? Is it possible for us to have all of these expectations built up and all of these thoughts about who Jesus is, what he will do, how he will speak, and what he will do for me, and for us to completely miss it? So then we have to answer the question, who is Jesus? And I, I wrote this down here for you. I'm going to give you the boundaries to work within, and then you can figure it out on your own, all right? Uh, Jesus, let me just give you one sentence, and this will begin your journey. He is no less than God's word, and he's no more than God. In other words, Jesus is not going to be anything different or anything less than what this book says. And Jesus is no more than God himself. He is the person of the Trinity. When you understand that, you have your boundaries for really discovering who Jesus is. In other words, Jesus is not a seasoning, no matter how good Tony Kikikacheres is. Jesus is not a seasoning that you add on to your life just to make it taste a little better, Right? Jesus is not a buffet that gives you everything that you want for the low cost of salvation. Jesus is not an a la carte menu where you pick what you want to add to your life and you add those things making up the meal of your faith, but you leave out the things that you're uncomfortable with or that you don't want to engage with. Jesus is no less than his word and no more than God himself. 
That's who we're working. And that's what we have to begin to understand. And, and I'll tell you this, I, I sympathize with John because uh, John was prophesied by the book of Isaiah. John knew what the book of Isaiah said. Luke quotes it in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Listen, he has sent me to proclaim that captives be released, that the blind will see and that the oppressed will be set free. And here John is sitting in prison. Saying, Jesus came and Jesus declared he had come to set free the captives, that they would be released, that the oppressed would be set free. Let's bring this full circle. Here is the danger of expectations is our propensity to trust them more than God. The danger of expectation is our propensity to trust expectations more than we trust God himself. And the ultimate test of them is when our expectations don't happen, is God still working? When the expectations don't happen, is God still working? Let's talk about what we just studied. Did he set the captives free? Yes. Yes. But he didn't set them free from a Roman prison. He set them free from hell. Did he set captives free? Yes. Did he set free the oppressed? Yes. But he didn't set free the oppressed from a Roman army. He set free the oppressed from sin that was decaying and destroying the soul. Was he still working? We had to wrap our minds around it. Jesus is always greater than our expectations. He's always greater than our expectations. And we have to remind ourselves that Jesus is the only person that can work beyond our expectations, and he's not bound by them. That's a really good thing. That's a really, really good thing. Those of you praying for a spouse in high school and you were in love with some girl that you're not married to now, thank God that he worked beyond your expectations, right? Husbands, I'm throwing you a bone here. Thank God he worked beyond your expectations, right? He works beyond them. He doesn't work confined to how we want him to work. He works beyond the things we expect of him. My uh, son had my phone and he was playing games on my phone. And I didn't know this, but apparently when an ad pops up, it promotes another game. And then an ad pops up and it promotes another game. And then an ad pops up and it promotes another game. And the only way you can play another level of the game is to download the next game that they're promoting to you. So he downloaded like 700 games. He downloaded like 700 games on my phone. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't get my phone to work. Like I would turn it on and in two hours my battery's dead. Fully dead. I went to Cell Geeks over by UPS. I love those guys. They know me by name because my devices are always jacked up. I went in there and I was like, this thing's fried. I need you to fix it. And he, he did a valuation on the battery. He's like, no, battery's good. This is good. Everything's good. He said, did you know you have like 40 games running in the background? It's like, no, but did you know I have a six-year-old that's about to be dead? You know, like, did you? And he said, listen, he said, what's happening is when you download these games, they run in the background. And as they're running in the background, they're draining your battery. You have to get rid of them. That's what expectations do to our spiritual life. We begin expecting God to do this and expecting God to do this. And these expectations are running in the background. And when something doesn't happen according to expectation, what does it give us an opportunity to do. John, doubt, to question, to be frustrated, to be annoyed. So here's how we wrap 
all of this together. We come to God with expectation. Expectation is good in faith. We come to God with expectation. We yield to his all-knowing, all-sufficient, all-powerful, fully sovereign grace, and we trust him. God, here's, here are my expectations, but my expectations don't limit you. Work beyond them. Work through them. Do whatever you may do, but I know you are greater than my expectation. Number one, John had the wrong Jesus. And he had the wrong Jesus because he was looking at Jesus through his expectations of him. Number two, expectation of actions. We've got to go. We've got to roll, okay? Uh, Number two, expectation of actions, Matthew 11, verse 2. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing, so he sent his disciples to ask Jesus. Let me wrap my mind around how I can condense this really quick. Do I need to condense it? Do we need to wrap it up? Do you want to keep going? Are you as interested in this as I am? I mean, listen, we have a, we have a pillar of the faith who is questioning right now who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and we're seeing how he walks through all of these things. I don't know about you, but it connects with me. He heard about the things. You see what he said? He heard about the things Jesus was doing, and what was his response? Is this real? Are you really who we're supposed to be expecting. You know, the expectation of the majority was that Jesus would come, he would overthrow the Roman Empire, he would rule, he would reign, he would establish his own kingdom, and yet, what did he do? We talked about this a couple weeks ago with Lazarus. What did he, he did nothing. He did absolutely nothing. When he was put on trial, he did nothing. When Peter sliced off the ear, he did nothing. When he was falsely accused, he did nothing. When he was mocked by the guards, he did nothing. When he was nailed to the cross, he did nothing. Yet what were the results? Jesus rose. Rome was overthrown. The church was victorious. And yet in the middle of it, it doesn't seem like he's working, but God is working. It doesn't seem like he, I was thinking about, I don't have a cute way of telling it to you. I don't have a rhyming sentence or a great illustration. Here's all that I know. If it doesn't seem like God is working, God is working. If it doesn't seem like God is working, God is working. If it doesn't seem like God is working, If it doesn't seem like God is working, if it doesn't seem like God is working, God is working. God is always working. He's always moving. Listen to John 13, verse 7. Jesus replied, I love this. You don't understand what I'm doing now, but someday you will. You may not understand the things that you're going through now, but someday you will. Because God is still working. God is still moving. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for, those who lo- who, for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. God is moving. Even when it doesn't feel like it, he's moving. Okay, we've got to wrap this up. Last one. My favorite one. Expectation of blessing. 
Remember this sentence, Matthew 11, verse 6. We, we talked about this. He says, and, and Jesus is now, he's confronting the disciples of John who questioned if Jesus was really who he said he was going to be. And here's what he says. God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. The ESV translates it way better. Matthew eleven six. 6. It says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That word for fall away, it's, it's a Greek word, scandalizo. It's where we get the English word scandal. And it means, blessed are you when the scandal of who I am and who I actually am and what I actually do, blessed are you when it doesn't offend you. Make it real applicable. Blessed are you when you don't get offended when I don't meet your expectations. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Blessed are you when you have a plan and I blow the plan up and you don't know what's happening next. Blessed are you. In fact, Jesus rolls in Matthew 11, 7 through 11, and he declares there's none greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was one of the greatest to walk the face of the earth, but John is not even close. He's the least of those who are in the kingdom of heaven. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you have an expectation of me and you think that I'm supposed to do something for you and I don't do it. Blessed are you if you still trust me. Blessed are you if you'll still follow me. Blessed are you if you'll still love me. I love what Spurgeon says. Listen to Spurgeon as only he can. He said, blessed, this is him commentating on this passage. Blessed is he who can be left in prison can be silenced in his testimony, can seem to be deserted of his Lord, and yet shut out every doubt. Blessed is he when life is a mess and he doesn't have a doubt in his soul. Blessed is he when nothing goes according to plan and he says, God, I still trust you. God, I still believe that you are who you say you are. I still believe that you have a plan. Maybe the greatest blessing that we have is not when God does it. Maybe the greatest blessing we have is when he does nothing and we can still trust him. And we can still say, I still trust you. I'm still here. I still know that you have a plan. I still know that you're good. And man, it didn't happen the way I was writing it out in my journal. But it doesn't need to because I'll still trust you. You know, I was thinking about this. Um, I was recently having a conversation with somebody uh, who has a very similar life to my childhood growing up, grew up. Uh, my father was, was absent in my life. My grandpa was my hero. He got Alzheimer's. He passed away. Once he passed away, I kind of found myself with this void of a father figure. Um, and then my dad... <clears throat> I've shared this with you. He spent half my adult life in prison, um, and then he got out, and, and af shortly after his last time in prison, he, he passed away. Um, and so it, it's always left me with this, with this void, right, of always searching for a father figure, always trying to figure out. I'm raising boys on my own now, and I'm, I'm just trying to navigate that and, and figure out what all of that looks like, right, with this, with this whole. And so there's another man I'm talking to, and he's, he's 
he's lived in a similar situation, and he asked me a question. He said, what was it like um, not having those things? Like not having dad around, not having your grandpa who was your hero, not having him around. Not, what, what was it like? Like what did it do to your soul? And I remember, right, I mean, the first thing, I couldn't even think about my answer. Had it been the Holy Spirit, the first thing I said to him is it just taught me to trust Jesus more. Taught me to trust Jesus more. Did I pray to have those relationships growing up? Did I beg God to heal and to restore and to redeem? Yes. Did it happen according to my expectation? No. But what was the end result? Man, I just trust Jesus more. Just trust him more. I walk with him more. I turn to him more. Salvation for me was spiritual adoption. It was everything that I'd longed for in life that I couldn't figure out or justify or navigate. Finding in Christ to satisfy my soul, not according to my expectation, but to his good will.